0: The Lord and Lady Douchebag. Hey folks, this is Rish Outfield and you are listening to the Rish Outcast. And... I've talked before about my nephew's headaches, that he gets these migraines, that they are uh, sometimes annoying, sometimes a great burden, and then sometimes absolutely debilitating. And for some reason, I have a headache today. But if he can function in society with a headache all the time, then I should be able to do a podcast with a headache. I have to make a quick run to the storage unit to drop off a box that I have boxed up. And uh, I figured I would present the first installment of my novella, Newfound Fame. This has been a long time in coming. I had intended to run this in the summer of 2021. And I didn't get to it. I had other things on my plate. And that's, that's fine. Consider it a stay of execution, if you will. Newfound fame, I believe, was completed around 2016. Might have been 2015, 2016. It is one of the pieces that I've written that I enjoyed the most. You'll find a c- couple of the running themes. It's in a lot of my work in this one. And... um I'm going to go ahead and run the first third or so of it so you won't hear a great deal from me. Well, I mean, you will hear a great deal from me because I'm narrating the audiobook. But what I meant was, without much more ado, I'm going to present this chunk of my story. Uh, You will hear a couple of familiar voices on this if you recall when I published this I wanted to do something special for the audio version and so I got a couple of my friends to lend their voices so thank you to Big Anklevich Renee Chambliss Bria Burton and then Tina and Chris Kolakowski who created some music for the presentation. It's a very unique thing. Something that had not happened before, and I I had forgotten how much I enjoyed the the synth, the 80s synth music that they gave me. So, I already said without much ado, so I shan't repeat that, the first segment of Newfound Fame. Newfound Fame. Written and narrated by Rish Outfield One Alonzo Moss thanked the old couple and drove on, turning left where the old wrecked truck sat inside the fence of some farmer's property. He noticed a plastic, or perhaps porcelain, pig had been placed on the truck's hood in homage to some movie, or perhaps just for cuteness' sake. The pavement stopped half a mile further, and it became a dirt road that was bumpy but drivable as long as he went slow. Soon, the road became twisty, more tree-lined, and he started to worry he wouldn't find the house he was looking for. And then there it was, to his right, a quaint one-story farmhouse out of a Norman Rockwell painting, with an honest-to-God weather vane on its roof. The old farmers had told him he'd know the house because there was a old refrigerator out front, and as he drove onto the property, he saw not one or two, but four broken-down refrigerators on either side of the mailbox. These didn't appear placed there to be cute, as much as if they were bodyguards or sentinels protecting the house. Alonzo drove on, parking right beside the little white house. Here we are he said to himself. He found he was grinning, his heartbeat increasing. His tenacity had paid off. He got out of the rental car. Though it was not intentional, indeed, was the furthest thing from his mind. He was about to ruin a man's life. Ernst Tillerman had been bringing firewood from the shed to the back of the house when he heard someone knocking at the door. He paused, wondering if the sound might have been a woodpecker or a logger somewhere, both of which were more likely than someone coming to his door. But it came again, louder, three quick knocks. He put down the four logs he carried, wiped his hands on his jeans, and stretched his aching back. He left the deck, and instead of going straight through, went around to the front of the house. The car at the edge of the rock path to his home was a big, nice ATV, a Jeep Tahoe or a Honda Pilot or something. It had Hertz rent-a-car plates on the front, and not a spot of mud on it. Not typical for around here. The man at the porch was well-dressed, not in a suit and tie, but in a button-up shirt and khakis, professional clothes, in other words, and Ernst got a government vibe from him. He was a fairly young man, maybe just past 40, with thin reddish hair and a forehead that went way back, but with a slim build, almost frail. He held a cell phone in his left hand and knocked one more time on the door. There was something slightly hesitant about his stance, so Ernst decided this was not a detective or FBI agent or something like that, maybe a tax man or a reporter. "'Help you?' Ernst asked, and the man spun around, as if caught peeking through the windows. Maybe that's what he'd been doing. "'Oh, hello,' said the man, stepping away from the door. He gestured up at the house. "'You build this all yourself?' Ernst glanced past him at the ramshackle house, drafty in winter, two windows that wouldn't open in the summer heat." "'practically a shower in the kitchen "'if it more than sprinkled outside. "'Been here a hundred years, mister. "'What can I do for you?' "'Are you?' "'The stranger began. "'Then Ernst noted his eyes, "'looking him up and down, "'which had always been quite an accomplishment. "'And the man smiled. "'An affectionate smile, "'as though they were old friends. "'Ernst Hillerman?' "'Maybe.' Ernst said, worried this might be a tax thing. To come all this way, it was either good news or the other kind. Still, that smile. Are you the Ernst Hillerman who played the brown depths monster? The bra... Ernst began, the question seeming to come out of nowhere. He almost made the stranger repeat it. But then it came back to him, just what monster the guy was asking about. remembered, although it had been a long time. Twenty, maybe thirty years? I guess so. In the movie, the stranger clarified. Where else? That's me. Who's asking? The stranger practically ran down the porch and stopped nearly toe-to-toe with him. For a second, Ernst thought he was going to get hugged. Then the visitor put his hand out. My name is Alonzo Moss, and I work in booking for conventions—wrestling, sci-fi, mostly comic conventions—and we're doing a horror film one in Salt Lake City, Utah, on the 1st of October. Ernst's hands were dirty from carrying wood, so he kept them at his sides. A horror film what? The man lowered his own hand. A convention, you know, where people who are big fans of that stuff can gather and buy memorabilia, listen to presentations, get autographs from their favorite stars. Ernst had heard of such things, he supposed, but not for horror movies. And in Salt Lake City, of all places, did they even get the movies there? Okay, he said. The stranger went on. I book talent for these things, and I came out here to invite you to participate. You came all the way out here, Ernst thought aloud. His was not the easiest house to find, and the number of people like this guy who had tracked him down to talk about a movie half his life ago, well, they now numbered only one. I don't have any money, sorry. No, I'm offering you some, chuckled Alonzo Mas. A hundred dollars a day. We'll fly you out to S.L.C., Put you up in a hotel, pay for meals, you show up, say a few words, and you can charge for autographs. Whatever you want. The grin on the guy's face as he told Ernst this was a sight to behold. He seemed almost giddy about it. Take my picture, Ernst repeated. He had never been a handsome guy, even in his younger, slimmer years. His army buddies had called him Private Frankenstein. It'd be old man Frankenstein now, he realized. Well, take a picture with you. We call them photo-ops. He flashed his teeth reassuringly. They don't take long. We have a system with a team of professionals. They've got it down to a science. People line up, step up next to you. We take the picture. They step away. In and out. Almost like an assembly line. The guy just kept jabbering on. All of his awkwardness now vanished, and Ernst stared at him, trying to figure out the angle here. You fly me out to take some pictures in assembly line. Alonzo Moss shrugged. Or not. If pictures aren't your thing, I won't mention it again. You're in charge, of course. Ernst was hesitant, and he shook his head, trying to think of a polite way to say, I don't believe you. Where's the sales pitch? The booking agent put up his hand, halting any potential response. I'm authorized to go up to $300 for your appearance fee, but that's the absolute maximum. Ernst snorted. It was like a commercial. Don't answer yet. Wait, there's more. He shook his head. You want to pay me to go somewhere in October? 300 bucks to go to your show. Ernst W. Hillerman wasn't stupid. If something sounded too good to be true, well... Right! You'd only get the money if you actually show up, you understand. Why? Ernst asked. There was a catch, obviously, and he wanted to hear that before any more sugary promises. Because, well, people will be counting on you to be there, and if you don't make it... Ernst interrupted him. No. Why do you want me to go there? Why me? Now the businessman seemed a little confused for a change. He licked his lips. You did play the creature, right? The creature from the Brown Depths? Ernst didn't remember what it had been called, exactly, whether it was Monster or Creature or even Beast. He hadn't seen the movie since that screening all those years ago. Hadn't thought of it in more than ten. Yeah, that was me. He put up his plate-sized hand. But I'm not an actor. I'm not a star. You know, a celebrity. I never did any movies after that. Why would anybody want to see me? There was a noticeable pause as the stranger considered his answer. Finally, he shrugged. Because... Well... Brown Depths has tons of fans, all over the country. Didn't you know that? Tons. Not exactly specific, that. It's what they call a cult classic, you know? People love that film. Ernst sniffed. No, they don't. It didn't make any money. I remember. That showing he'd been to had consisted of friends and families of the people who made it. "'none of whom had to pay to get in, "'and it had still only been half full. "'Well, no,' admitted Mr. Moss. "'Not at first. "'But later, after the tapes got passed around, "'then the eventual DVD, it got a reputation. "'Joe Bob Briggs said it gave him nightmares.' "'Ernst didn't know who that was. "'But yeah, it was a scary movie. "'It had that much going for it.' "'Okay.' I assure you, people will line up to hear you talk, to take pictures with you, to get your autograph. And then, uselessly, he added, you, Ernst Hillerman. Ernst sighed. He was an old man now, fat and jowly, and he'd never been much to look at, even in his heyday. But the idea of people wanting to meet him wasn't unattractive. And three hundred bucks... A free trip and a couple of paid-for meals was even more so. But he had to be realistic here and put it on the line. They're going to be disappointed. I'm not a public speaker or that sort of thing. Look, I was a garbage man my whole life. Sanitation worker, if you want to be hoity-toity. And one morning, I was doing my pickups when this guy, this kid really, runs out of his house in a bathrobe, like a silky lady's one. He says, wait, stop. And I think he threw something out that he shouldn't have. Or more likely, his wife threw something of his out. He didn't want taken to the dump. Happened a lot. The businessman nodded for Ernst to continue the tale. I stop and wait. And he comes over, big old smile on his face. How tall are you, he asks. I say, Me? I'm six-seven. He says, and about how much do you weigh? I say, excuse me? He says, two-eighty, two-ninety. I shrug and say, yeah, about that. He says, are you strong? Could you lift up a full-grown man, say, by his neck? Well, I figure this guy is being a mean-spirited, you know what. Or worse, he wants me to scare somebody who owes him money. It was a big nice house he'd come out of, and I'd heard that before, though not in those words exactly. But he says, How about a girl? Could you carry a girl into a pool of quicksand? Like fake quicksand, don't you worry. And I'm starting to think, he's just crazy, gonna ask me if I'm circumcised next. But he says, "'My name is Bowman, and I'm making a monster movie, "'and I want you as the monster, if you'll do it. "'He offered me five hundred bucks for a week's work, and... "'You know, I don't think I ever got that money.' Ernst slouched a little, his story done.
1: "'So there's nothing
0: special about me. "'No reason your fans would want to see me in person.' Alonzo Moss's eyes were wide and bright. No, that sort of thing is exactly what they want to hear. You have no idea how hard it's been to find you. People are obsessed with brown depths, and you're pretty much the only one left to come to the convention. I promise you, if you come out, tell that same story, maybe share a detail or two about the shooting, about the suit you wore, people will cheer and clap and give you 20, maybe 40 bucks to sign their poster or Blu-ray. You're serious. It wasn't a question, but this still sounded like a scam to old ears. Just say you'll do it. Shake my hand. It's the first week in October, and I'll grab the paperwork from the car. So Ernst did. There was a contract, already with his name on it, and he felt unreality seeping in. Hey, mister. Call me Alonzo. Another smile. If this is legit... How come I never heard of these super fans before? What? Of the movie? Well, I didn't see it until four or five years back, but it really scared me. You really scared me. Found out from a girlfriend how much people are obsessed with the film, and a couple of years later, I have the chance to do something about it. He looked past the old man, taking in the extremely rural surroundings. It sure wasn't easy to identify you. Nobody knew who you were, because you were uncredited. I was? Yeah, it says, And the Brown Depths Monster as himself, at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. Ernst chuckled. I guess I remember that. Maybe that's why they thought they didn't have to pay me. The businessman's smile became a childlike grin. He seemed legitimately starstruck, or at least amused by Ernst's experience. Mr. Hillerman, I really appreciate you doing this. If you couldn't tell, I'm a fan. Uh Uh-huh. Still, he had to know. And what's in this for you, if I go to Utah for this thing? In it for me? Well, I'll be there on the stage to introduce you, and they'll know it was me that found you, and... Well, I'll get a fee, too, for your appearance. A fee. Mr. Moss's cheeks reddened. Like a talent agent. But don't you worry. You'll get paid. It won't be like 1987, I guarantee. Ernst sighed. He didn't want to believe this man's promises of fame and attention. But he seemed so genuine, almost down to earth and Ernst needed the money. His retirement checks were a joke, and he hadn't sold any firewood since March. The house was paid for, but crumbling, and Ernst's rusting Ford pickup would have cost so much to repair he'd let the shop keep it for parts, which had, apparently, still not sold. He'd been wanting to get a dog to replace his golden retriever, Harold, but hadn't dared commit to it instead fighting loneliness and melancholy all on his own. So, when the businessman put out his hand again, he shook it. Wow, that is one big hand, Moss exclaimed. Perfect for tearing the hearts out of cheerleaders, right? guess so, Ernst said, and chuckled. Two Excerpt from original screenplay, second revised shooting draft, written by Ian V. Bowman, based on a story by Bowman and Sonny Caldwell Jr. Copyright 1987, We'll Tell Overture Films. Exterior, woods, night. Lizzie, Brad, and Chet sit around the campfire, finishing their marshmallows. Brad and Lizzie sit on the same log, snuggled romantically together as Chet pokes at the fire with his stick she's been gone a long time don't you chicks always pee together
2: not in the woods we don't
0: well she's pretty brave going off alone in this neck of the woods
2: what do you mean you know what are you getting at chat
1: oh I thought for sure you knew
2: knew what? You'd tell me if you had AIDS, wouldn't you?
1: Knew about the history of this place. You've never heard of the Brown Depths Monster?
0: Yeah, everybody has.
2: I haven't. What's the Brown Death Monster?
0: Depths, Lizzie.
1: The monster from the Brown Depths. You see, this used to all be plantation land years and years ago. And there was this girl, daughter of the plantation owner, who fancied one of the slaves. Fancied? She rode him like a mechanical bull. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. But of course word got around, and things being what they were in those days. The Whites decided to lynch this poor kid. Lynch means kill.
2: I know what lynch means.
1: But the slave boy, he ran for it, straight into the woods, right around where we are now. And there's swampy areas, just a little deeper in, and bogs, and quicksand, and the boy ran into some and got sucked under.
0: Wait, wait. First the rednecks found him, when he was sunken into his waist.
1: Oh, that's right, he grabbed onto a vine or a low-hanging branch or something and though he couldn't get out on his own, he wasn't going all the way under. But the angry whites, well, they weren't gonna leave it at that, so they cut the vines or chopped down the tree and left him alone singing, look away, look away, Dixie Land" as he slowly went under the awful brown water.
0: I heard it was Battle him in the Republic, but yeah, they all walked away and laughed as the boy died, all by himself. That's awful,
2: but there are lots of stories like that from those days. Whoa, whoa,
1: let Brad finish. But that wasn't the end. The slave's grandma or his aunt or something, well, of course she knew voodoo. That's racist. And she used her powers to bring him back, but not the way he was. But as a, I don't know, a a writer of wrongs. An instrument of unholy revenge. Unholy?
2: That might be a little bit racist too.
0: Well, the monster's out there. To this day, just waiting for someone to awaken it so it can rise again. Margot finally comes out from the bushes, sitting down by the fire. Everything come out okay?
2: What were you guys yammering away about? Some crazy story about a monster that lives around here. Oh, the Brown Depth's creature isn't a story. It's real. Come on. No, seriously. He drowned, like, a hundred years ago?
0: We already told her that, Margot.
2: Oh, well... All you have to do is do something to defile his territory, and he comes running. What does that mean? How do you defile his territory?
0: An orgy might do it. Or just girl-on-girl sex. What do you think?
2: Right, Chet. If you and Brad have sex, that would probably work, too. Wait a minute. Was this all just an elaborate way to see if I'd be into that sort of thing?
0: No, it's a true story- Don't answer yet, Brad. Let's see what she says. Lizzie and Margot, Shara, what can you do? Look. Come on, baby. Let's have a little fun. See what happens.
2: Well, okay. What can it hurt?
0: She starts to unbutton her blouse. Three. Ernst Hillerman got off the plane at Salt Lake International Airport and was immediately impressed by the mountains, brown and orange, they'd passed over, which could be seen to the east like an enormous wall around the city. The trip had been uneventful, laying over briefly in Indianapolis, and he'd nodded off for an hour or so. He had been flown in coach rather than business or first class, but he didn't mind. He got a meal and two bottles of orange juice. He had only brought a carry-on, a change of clothes, his shaving kit, and a thick Louis Lemoore omnibus he'd had for years but never read. He made it about a hundred pages in. On the airplane, a few rows up from him, he did see two twenty-somethings who, aside from a dozen tattoos between them, had brought what appeared to be a replica of the baby alien that came out of guys' chests in those movies. He considered asking them if they were in town for the convention but stayed quiet instead, watching with mild curiosity. He was met in the terminal by Mr. Moss, who had come to the airport himself and greeted him like an old friend. Of course, that's how he had been on their first meeting. But Ernst had received no fewer than three letters from the man, as well as one phone call on Monday, just to make triple sure he would still be attending. How was your flight? the booking agent asked. Fine, fine said Ernst, who looked down at the man, who wasn't particularly short, but still below Ernst's nose, as was typical, with a smile of his own. I do appreciate all the fuss you've gone to. It's no problem. Believe me. This is going to be as big as I said it would. Bigger. If you can believe it, my boss has gotten more emails double-checking that you'd be there than England or Quigley combined. That meant nothing to him. But Ernst nodded and said, Well, it's an adventure, no matter what else happens. Moss drove him to the Hyatt Regency. that was apparently a stone's throw from the convention center, right in the middle of downtown. All the folks he had encountered had been very polite to Ernst, and he was impressed by how clean and organized everything was in Salt Lake. The air was crisp and cool, the fall leaves a sight to behold. And even though the cars and buildings were modern, there was an old-fashionedness to the atmosphere that wasn't unlike Ernst's own childhood back in Charlotte. Moss offered to come by and pick him up in his car the next morning. But Ernst said he preferred to walk. After all, the air smells good. And you said it was just down the street. Well, yes, but even so. I'm old, Ernst said with a shrug. I'm not that old. Oh, I've no doubt you're still the toughest man in any room you walk into, Moss said, though that sounded like a phony compliment, even if the businessman looked sincere when he said it. As long as it's empty when I go in there. A laugh. They got checked into the hotel, a nice second-floor room with all the amenities. You told me you don't have a cell phone, Moss said, as though reminding Ernst of the fact. He knew damn well he didn't have a cell phone. By choice. It wasn't like he'd never heard of one. I do have a walkie-talkie I could lend you for the weekend. We could communicate with it. Ernst raised an eyebrow. Breaker, Baker, we got some real Bettys in our rear view. That sort of thing. Alonzo Moss looked perplexed. For once, he wasn't laughing. I just mean to stay in contact. I could call you in the morning, tell you I'm on my way to the Salt Palace. The what? That's the venue's name. Takes up two blocks. You can't miss it. Just walk west. Back home, Ernst Hillerman could not only tell you which direction he was looking, but usually within half an hour of the time, day or night. However, this was a new city, two thousand miles from anything familiar, with all sorts of local landmarks to distinguish north from south. Which way is where? Away from the mountains, Moss said, and chuckled. Apparently he got that question often. They sort of go north and south, as far as the eye can see. Ernst had noticed them, of course, but looked again, realizing that, yes, all the way north to all the way south, there were continual mountains, like that dinosaur with all the plates on its back. Oh, and streets aren't named here, Alonzo said. They're numbered. All right, said Ernst, nodding, though he wasn't sure what that meant exactly. Anyhow, if you need anything at the convention, you can just use your walkie-talkie to ask. Like what? What will I need? Maybe there was a catch, and Ernst was going to hear about it now. If you need a water or a soda, or need to go to the bathroom or out for a cigarette, that sort of thing... I can't go to the bathroom at this thing without permission. Well, you can, of course. But you might want security to escort you. Fans can be really clingy, really slow to let the talent have a few minutes alone, without pestering you with questions, autographs, you know. Ernst just stared. This was too unlikely. No way in God's green earth would anybody care about fat, gray-haired Ernst W. Hillerman even if he was at a convention dedicated solely to people who loved big, tall, and old guys. He thought of something. You know, my sister's got kids, a grandkid on the way, Ernst said, putting the walkie-talkie in his bag. I asked them about this Brown Depths thing. All three of them never heard of the movie, let alone care that I'm in it. Moss shook his head. Well, that's too bad, Mr. Hillerman. But like I said, it's a cult film, one of those movies with a following that's small but really dedicated. Ah, Ernst said, like Star Wars, and you can call me Ernst. He shouldn't have said it, he knew, especially if this guy was using him in some way. But again, Alonzo Moss just seemed genuine. If it was an act, then he should have been in the movies himself, not representing folks that were. Moss seemed to think this was funny, but didn't say why. Well, not quite like Star Wars. You'll see. And you can call me Alonzo. Exterior. Brown Swamp. Night. The moonlight reflects off the foulest water imaginable. Something bubbles underneath its surface. More bubbles. Something emerges from the mud and muck, a human-like shape. It rises out of the depths and walks onto shore. It is the Brown Depths Monster, and it is huge, at least seven feet tall, all muscle, filth, and rot. It may have once worn clothes, But they're hardly visible beneath the layers of swamp growth. The creature lumbers along, leaving wet drippings in its wake. Its eyes are alive and red. Its mouth is permanently open, like the corpse that it is. It freezes, looking right at the camera. An animal, a rabbit, raccoon, deer, whatever, sees the creature and makes a run for it. The monster glares at the animal, then begins walking again in the direction it was going before, toward the fools that awakened it. Four. Ernst got up at eight o'clock, though he'd been awake hours earlier, still on East Coast time, lying in bed, trying to go back to sleep. He'd had a weird dream, where he suddenly remembered... He hadn't actually been in a movie, and it had slipped his mind, only to come back to him when a group of screaming teenagers had mistakenly come to his presentation, anxious to see the Beatles on The Sullivan Show. He was standing in front of an army of squealing, pretty girls in miniskirts, and he realized he'd forgotten to wear pants. Funny, those kind of dreams, though they don't seem funny at the time. He met Alonzo Moss and a security guard, who was tall and skinny and about as intimidating as the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, in the lobby of the Hyatt Regency, and the three of them walked over to the convention center, which was a beautiful white building with almost gothic architecture, even though it had been built in the 1970s. Walkie-talkie? Alonzo Moss asked. Ernst patted it where it hung on his pants, though it would have worked better with a belt. Moss had a suit and tie on, and had done something to his hair, so it stood up about three inches higher than it should have. Ernst felt underdressed. He had on a pair of jeans and a black long-sleeved sweater. But Ernst didn't know what underdressed meant, as he started to notice people walking down the sidewalk dressed as vampires, masked murderers, wolfmen, aliens, a horde of zombies, sideshow freaks, politicians— even demonic clowns. In broad daylight they made their way to the end of the street, where there was a line of at least three hundred people, young and old, most dressed in black. At least Ernst had remembered to wear pants. At the entrance to the Salt Palace, Moss introduced Ernst to his boss, a man named Farr, who ran all sorts of conventions and had never heard of Brown Depths. That did not bode well for this weekend. But Gonzo Alonzo speaks highly of the movie, and you, said Far. so we'll just take his word on all this. Yeah, I'm doing the same, Ernst admitted. Farr said he had a meeting to go to, and Moss asked him if he'd be attending their panel. I'm not really the horror sort. No offense, he added. None taken, Ernst said looking around at all the booths and vendors and excited fans. He didn't suppose he was either. Moss, too, had a couple of places he needed to go, he said, but he showed Ernst to the VIP room, where he could spend the time when he wasn't doing a signing or in the brown depths remembered panel. His big moment. Make sure you have your badge on at all times, Moss reminded him. If you go outside for a smoke or something... Just flash it to the volunteers, and they'll let you in any doors. And it'll get you a free meal in the showroom, and I think up to three beers. Wow, Ernst said, looking down at the badge he'd been given, attached to a lanyard around his neck. It showed a pumpkin with bats flying out of it, and said, Ernest Hillerman, special guest. They had misspelled his name, but he liked being called special. Okay. "'The panel's at eleven, Moss told Ernst. "'I'm going to have Wyatt here walk around with you, just in case. "'The panel's in Ballroom B. Wyatt knows where that is.' "'Just in case what?' Ernst asked. "'You know,' Moss said. "'Fanboys wanting pictures with you, women wanting sex, that sort of thing.' "'What?' Ernst almost choked. "'Oh, I got you a shirt,' Moss remembered pulling a black T-shirt with Horror Spooktacular and the dates emblazoned on it. He handed it to Ernst, who looked at the front, then checked the tag. XXL. Thanks, Ernst said, though he'd probably never wear it. Thank you, Moss said, then ran off to his other duties. Interior. Hallway. Night. Etika. Dressed only in a towel, her hair still wet from the shower, steps out of the bathroom.
2: Roger, did you say something?
0: There's no response, but she smiles at this.
2: Oh, are you not done playing yet? Or is this a new game?
0: She walks through the hall and checks the bedroom. No one is there.
2: Roger, Dodger.
0: She crosses to the other side, approaching the closet, where Roger's dead body was stuffed. She puts her hand on the doorknob and then pauses. There's a noise in the kitchen, the creaking of a floorboard.
2: Ah, there you are.
0: She leaves the closet unopened and walks on. Interior, kitchen, night.
2: Okay, show yourself, and I'll be happy to show myself.
0: She begins to remove the towel, stepping into the kitchen. The brown depths monster is standing by the refrigerator, staring at her. It's huge compared to her small frame. The towel drops to the floor. Etika screams. The monster lunges forward, grabbing onto her head with its enormous fists. With a twist and a jerk, Etika's head is ripped from her naked, flailing body. The kitchen floor runs red. Five. At 11 a.m., it was the Brown Depths Remembered panel. Ernst had meant to ask which other people that worked on the film would be there, but it had slipped his mind. There was a stage at one end of a big ballroom, holding a table covered in black, with several chairs behind it. The security guard had made sure Ernst was backstage and ready as soon as the panel before, a tribute to an Italian film director who had apparently retired recently, and had apparently been a big deal, let out. Alonzo Moss had come running at about five minutes to the hour, slapping Ernst on the back and asking if he was ready for this. Not sure, Ernst said. He was standing behind a curtain and could hear the sound of people, maybe even a crowd, in the auditorium, but he still couldn't believe the monster movie had that many fans. He had seen some real characters walking around the convention, some in costume and makeup, some in their regular clothes, but just as outlandish, with piercings, tattoos, and ridiculous hair straight out of the punk rock era. They wouldn't be interested in him, even if he had forgotten his pants on stage. Oh, hey, Ernst remembered finally, Who else is here? Here? From the movie? Just you and me, chum, Moss said. We've got fifty minutes, all about you. Ernst felt himself reddening. All this was still hard to believe. Even if absolutely nobody showed up for his panel, or were there not for him but just to pass the time, it had still been quite an adventure. Coming out here, having things paid for him, and of course... The free t-shirt. He opened his mouth to express this, or try to anyway, when a voice over the speakers said, Okay, folks, time for the next panel. Please take your seats. If there are empty seats beside you, scoot in so late arrivals can sit on the aisles. Thank you. It's time, Moss said, and grinned. He looked like the world's oldest little kid, excited about Christmas morning. Don't be nervous, You'll do fine. Okay. Easier said than done, of course. The voice over the speakers introduced our moderator and friend of the guest, Gonzo Alonzo Moss. And people applauded. Moss stepped out on stage, and Ernst started to follow him. But a technician with a headset stopped him. One minute, she said. Alonzo Moss took a microphone from the stand and waved at the still-unseen crowd. We've got something special for you today, Horror Files, but I gotta ask, how many of you are fans of the Brown Depths? There came a thunderous applause, as well as cheering, whistling, and energetic shouting. Ernst couldn't imagine a small group could make so much noise. He started to sweat. Me too, folks, me too moss was saying and as many of you know this special guest came hundreds of miles to be with us today and this is his first public appearance ever can you imagine more applause moss put up his hand obviously enjoying being ringleader of this little circus i know he's a tad nervous so let's bring him out and make him feel welcome ladies and gentlemen the actor inside the infamous Brown Depths monster suit, Ernst Hillerman. And the crowd went wild. Ernst stepped forward and was assaulted by a hundred flashbulbs as a crowd of more than a thousand stood up and clapped, cheered, whistled, and took his picture. A pretty, heavy-set girl on the front row began to scream, as though Paul McCartney had indeed just stepped out from behind the curtain, guitar in hand. She had a T-shirt on with a picture of what looked to be the monster he'd played in the movie on it. Ernst waved at her. Surreality washed over him, looking at all those faces, hearing all that noise. He'd shaved and combed his hair, but he felt he hadn't done enough. Underdressed, underprepared, This was just as Alonzo Moss had said it would be, except with way more people. Ernst crossed and sat down in the proffered seat next to Moss. The businessman was grinning big, and Ernst realized he was too, though he felt like he might also be blushing, maybe dripping sweat too. He glanced at the crowd and had to look away. It was too much to swallow, that they were all there to see him, that they could all care. Maybe it was a very elaborate, very expensive, practical joke, he thought. Or more likely, he'd slipped while hiking in the woods, hit his head, and this was a fever dream, or one of those flashes people get before their brains just give out altogether. Not a bad way to go, really. Pretty overwhelming, huh? Alonzo Ma said beside him. He reached over and patted Ernst on the arm and seemed, if it was possible, moved in some way to see this kind of reaction on the big non-actor. I'll say. The technician handed Ernst a microphone and encouraged him to say it again. Moss gestured out front. I talked to a couple before the panel, Ernst, that came all the way over from the Polynesian Islands. Samoa, I think. "'To see you.' "'In the crowd, somebody unseen hooted. "'There they are. "'That's the kind of fan base Brown Depths has gained over the years. "'And you told me that you didn't think people remembered the movie, "'that your grandkids had never heard of it.' "'Nephew's and niece, yeah,' Ernst said quietly. "'He kept tossing surreptitious glances toward the audience. "'Not sure why they made him so nervous,' but uncomfortable knowing they were there. So he just looked at Moss, like it was only the two of them. Well, let me give you a bit of history then, and then we'll get to the questions. The folks out there already know this, but... He referred to a couple of index cards in his hand, and spoke into his microphone. The Brown Depths, the first feature by screenwriter Ian Bowman was released on the 13th of July, 1987, by the New Century Vista Film Company. At its widest, it was only on 261 screens. It grossed just over a million dollars during its run in the U.S. and Canada, which wasn't much, but considering it was made for half that, he shrugged. In 1988... The planned VHS release was put on hold when the film's producer, Sonny Caldwell, passed away. Depths was shelved and eventually removed from the schedule and essentially forgotten. For years, the only way to see it was if you had a print. Quentin Tarantino has stated he owns one or bootlegged off a very limited Japanese Laserdisc. That's how many of the fans in here saw it myself included. I saw it at a party at a friend's house more than 10 years ago and became an instant convert. I remember going online the next day, trying to find a DVD copy, none of which officially existed at the time. But it was heavily bootlegged and in 2008, Scream Factory put out the first Blu-ray edition with pretty much no special features, just text information. But by then, Brown Depths was a cult favorite, brought up often in horror circles. In 2013, the website HorrorFans.net did a big article on the production, reprinting extant interviews, surviving stills, citing cast lists. Moss looked over, gave a nod. That's where I first saw Ernst Hillerman's name come up, as playing the creature. Up till then, it was always the Brown Depths monster as himself. YouTube's horror classics Revealed recently did a segment called Curse of the Brown Depths, which, the last I looked, had over a million hits. None of this meant much to Ernst, but he listened with interest. You don't say. I made several calls trying to track down Mr. Hillerman, Moss went on. "'and eventually found an address for him, but no phone.' "'He looked at the audience. "'Can you believe he doesn't have a phone?' "'Several people laughed. "'A couple actually applauded that. "'Of course Ernst had a telephone at his house, "'though it hardly ever rang. "'Moss just kept going. "'So I bought a plane ticket "'and drove down to his little town in South Carolina. "'Not even a town, really. "'I mean, he lives out in the woods.' not unlike the monster he portrayed so effectively, and asked him if he'd join us today. So here he is, the man behind the mask. Again, more applause. Ernst, would you mind telling me the story you told on your porch about getting the part in the movie? So Ernst told the tale, in more detail than before, of his run-in with the film director, and was pleased to hear laughter and enthusiasm from the fans, who were both young and older, though certainly nobody his age that he could see. A lot of misfits, a lot of black hair and black clothing, a lot of chains and piercings and facial hair, but still respect, almost joy at being in the room with him. It was beyond surreal, whatever that word would be. The audience actually booed and hissed, when Ernst mentioned he'd never been paid for the nights he worked on the film. "'Hey, hey,' he said, putting his big hands up. "'This is a payment. Overdue, but pretty damned great.'" The booze quickly became applause once again. As he spoke, and as Alonzo Moss asked him questions, a line formed in one of the aisles where a microphone was set up for fans to ask him questions. Soon, there were a dozen people standing there, waiting for their turn. So, Moss said, I've just got to know, how did you do the fog? The fog, Ernst asked. The scene where Etika and Roger are walking back from their little get-together, and suddenly all this fog starts creeping out of the woods and grass. You know? Ernst laughed. He actually knew the answer to that one. It was just foggy. We were going to shoot another part, had it all ready to go, and then this fog started rolling in, just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and the director starts screaming to stop what we were doing and get out there where the fog was. So we did the stuff where I came out of the trees and went after the girls. The audience was eating this up. He turned to look at the crowd and saw a kid lumbering up to the microphone dressed, believe it or not, like the brown depths monster. Oh, my God, look at this guy, Ernst heard himself exclaim. The costumed kid froze, people clapped, and he waved to the crowd. Alonzo Moss laughed and said, Can everybody see this young man? No, come on up here on the stage so we can all see you. The kid, who turned out to be exactly that, all of five feet tall, despite the giant he portrayed, made his awkward way up the stairs and onto the stage, where Ernst was really able to see how terrible the homemade costume was. It was made of what looked like papier-mâché, painted brown and green, with swimming goggles where the eyes would be. (laughs) That's great, Ernst said, still chuckling. You made that yourself? A nod. Alonzo Moss walked over to the boy. We'll open it up to questions now, but we'll let... uh, What's your name? Mike, came a muffled, pre-adolescent voice inside the costume. It looked pretty terrible, but hey, the one in the movie hadn't been much to speak of either. We'll let Mike here ask the first question. Alonzo put his microphone in front of the boy's mouth. Um, what was the costume made of? It was barely understandable but it got a laugh from the audience and the panel. Ernst thought back. That costume. Well, it seems to me that it was a jogging suit. Extra large, you know, with padding. I think it was bean bags, sewn in to look weird around my back and, and shoulders. There was a hood and a sort of devil mask under the hood. He sighed. And then everything was covered in mud. They had these big 20-gallon tubs filled with mud in the bed of a truck, and they'd just layer it on me right before we filmed. Sometimes Bowman would do it, sometimes I'd do it myself. When it dried, they just put more on. Again, people clapped. The way the mud looked on camera, it was wet and almost seemed alive. It looked pretty impressive, but it was no fun to be in the suit. Did it smell? the child in the costume asked. No, it didn't smell, Ernst said. Well, it smelled like sweat, probably. Moss sat down again, and now it was time for the Q&A portion of the panel, when things would really get interesting. Six. The line for questions was getting pretty long. A pockmarked, long-haired guy in a leather jacket with a killer from the Texas Chainsaw Films on it tapped the microphone, then said, Cool to meet you. Your movie kicks ass. Thanks, Ernst said, though it hadn't been his movie. He hadn't even liked it. So I got a question, the long-haired dude said. How did they do Cammy's death scene? Which one was Cammy? Ernst asked. Some of the audience seemed to think this was charming. The girl that got, you know, decapitated. Oh, yeah, Ernst remembered. That had been during the scenes they shot in the supposed cabin, which was really part of the producer's unfinished guesthouse. The girl, uh, she had this mannequin head with a wig on it that sort of looked like her, strapped to her shoulders. I think it was velcroed on. When I wrestled with her, she sort of bent over so you couldn't see a real head, and I pulled it off. We had, um, I don't know, like Ziploc baggies filled with blood hooked to the bottom of the head, so when I pulled it, it would go all over. It was messy, but neat. We only did it one time, but I think she had another outfit they were going to put her in and set it all up again if we had to do it a second time. Right on long-haired dude said thanks thank you Ernst said the line moved forward as people asked their questions then went back to their seats the attractive girl Ernst had noticed on the front row came up to the mic her shirt did indeed have the monster on it as well as the caption i survived the brown depths will you she thanked him for being there that day adding that she thought he was way scarier than Jason or Freddy, though not as much as Michael Myers, whoever that was. Then she asked, What did you think of the movie? Of being part of it? I, I only saw it once, back when it was new. It was a little scary, but I remember thinking the characters were all pretty stupid. There were a couple of chuckles at this, but mostly the audience seemed disappointed in his answer. It was the first time they'd been less than thrilled with him. The girl who asked the question didn't like his answer either, and slumped back toward her seat. Alonzo Moss cleared his throat beside him. Well, we'd all agree that it doesn't take a genius to wake a murdering swamp monster from its hibernation. Ernst shrugged. Next up was an Asian girl. She had to ask her question twice, because she'd spoken so quietly the first time. What was Ian Bowman like? Bowman had been the young director who'd chased him down while on his trash pickup. Maybe twenty-five, maybe younger. He had been pretty friendly, and Ernst's memories of him were good ones, even if he'd never been paid what he'd been promised. Well, he was one of those kids who wouldn't take no for an answer. Real pushy, but likable. He had a tattoo of the shark from Jaws on his arm— Back before every kid had tattoos. Smart kid. The next question came from a middle-aged guy with glasses and an official Halloween spooktacular t-shirt, as many people were wearing. Uh, Hi, Mr. Hillerman. I just wondered what you thought of the curse. Whether you believe in it or not. Several people voiced their support for this question. The curse, Ernst asked. He remembered, vaguely, that the movie was about a monster that came alive whenever people came around and bothered it, if that was the curse they were talking about.
1: You know, the
0: curse of the brown depths? Ernst shook his head. The reaction from the crowd was hard to gauge. They either thought he was stupid, or were feeling cheated that he hadn't answered the question truthfully. Alonzo spoke up beside him. "'You've never heard of the curse?' "'I thought we talked about this.' "'Don't think so.' "'He addressed the crowd. "'You've got to remember, Mr. Hillerman doesn't have the Internet. "'His place didn't even have electricity.' "'Well, that wasn't true. "'There were lights, a television Ernst seldom used, "'even flushing toilets. "'Ernst considered making a crack about actually owning a refrigerator, "'then recalled in embarrassment,' He owned several broken ones he'd never gotten around to throwing away. Moss looked through his note cards. Over the years, people have begun to speculate that, like other franchises, Superman, Poltergeist, there's a curse on the production of the Brown Depths. Ernst leaned forward. What does that mean, curse on the production? Because nobody went to see it. Alonzo Moss paused. He licked his lips. The audience was restless, whispering amongst themselves. Ernst felt like he was missing something, a joke that was so old to them they didn't need to hear the punchline. You see, there have been a series of accidents, incidents, related to the movie. The writer, director, Ian Bowman well, he came out to Los Angeles after the movie was made, hoping to strike it big. They say he met with a couple of studios, based on the strength of his feature, and... Moss licked his lips again. He was murdered. His arms and legs were all broken. He... He was torn apart, the middle-aged guy, the microphone added. They thought it was an animal at first that did it. Oh. Ernst felt pity for the kid, who had run out one cold morning in a bathrobe and bare feet, "'excited to see a big, burly stranger emptying his trash. "'Is that true?' he asked Moss. "'A nod. "'So far as I know, the killer was never brought to justice.' "'Moss glanced down at his notes again. "'Sonny Caldwell, the film's producer, "'disappeared while jogging, never resurfaced. "'This was in North Carolina. "'Also in North Carolina, Paige Schneider, "'the film's main actress,' "'jumped from a hotel room window, leaving no note. "'Oh, my,' Ernst heard himself say. "'That girl had been so lovely, both physically and personally.' "'The middle-aged guy at the microphone went on, "'as though he had notes in front of him as well. "'Brandon Ramirez, the actor who played Brad, Odeed on heroin in 1989. "'Shannon Irwin, who played Etika, Disappeared after an audition. Never turned up. Yes, in New York, Moss added. This and other tragic incidences have led many to, um, speculate that there was a curse on the production, but that could... Lolly Fontaine, the middle-aged guy threw in, drove off the road in the hills in Raleigh, North Carolina. Her body was found three days later. The Bugs had been Lolly Fontaine, Ernst asked Moss. She was the cinematographer. She worked on a couple of documentaries, including... She also played Margot, said the fan at the microphone. Yes, thank you, Moss said to the man, hoping he'd take the hint and leave the mic. He didn't, waiting for Ernst's opinion. Ernst swallowed. This is the first I've heard of any of that i was i I wasn't really friends with any of them- the people who made the movie after I worked on it. I went back to being a trash man. I haven't seen any of those guys since the night we all watched it at the theater. Moss didn't let it go, but you never felt anything when you were making it like there might be something unusual happening on the set. Ernst shook his head. It was all in fun, really, a bunch of sweet, enthusiastic kids making a movie. I wish I had better stories to tell, but except for when the girls took their tops off, it was all kind of boring. Just sitting around. And I lived in that same town for ten or so years after that, then retired and moved out to the boonies where you found me. He glanced at the crowd, gathered to hear him talk. I never had anything bad happen to me all the time I lived there except once nearly slicing off my finger, cutting the branches off a tree. He flexed the now healed finger for the audience, and some of them laughed. Not most, though. So you don't think there's a curse? The middle-aged guy was still asking. Well, I... He tried to be delicate. No, not that I know of. Well, It's right there on the Wikipedia page, the fan declared, as though that said it all. Ernst squinted at him. What does that mean? He seemed to take that as a cue to continue his stream of evidence. Eric Teague, the makeup artist that designed your costume, he opened his wrists in a Kentucky trailer park in 1990, left no suicide note, hadn't been depressed, It was his son's birthday the next day. Next question, please, said Moss, clearing his throat. The middle-aged fan frowned, but stepped away from the microphone and headed back to where he came from. Next in line for questions was a black guy with bleached blonde hair and a Spider-Man T-shirt for some reason. Predictably, he also wanted to know about the curse. What about the guy from the horror film site? That was just a year or two ago. Moss looked down at his cheat sheet. Yes, uh, Doug Chamberlain, the webmaster I spoke of before. He drowned in his bathtub in his apartment in Little Rock, Arkansas. Fully clothed, the fan added. Yes, he was dressed, or so they say. All of them were alone at the time, said the fan. Ernst was getting spooked by all this. What is your point, young man? What is this curse supposed to be? Well, I don't know, said the fan. But they say the movie was based on a real legend. Who says this? Ernst wanted to know. The Internet? That there was a guy who drowned, but he didn't drown. He became the Brown Depths monster. Most of the time he's sleeping, but when he wakes up, you know. Ernst frowned. This was ridiculous. Sure, that was the story that was told in the movie, but that didn't mean anything. It was just made up, as far as I know. You didn't, like, hear those stories when you were a kid or anything? The fan asked. No, I... But now that he thought of it, maybe he had heard something about a crazy man in the woods who would steal children "'or well, that might just have been in a movie, too. "'It was a long time ago. "'I'm sorry. "'I don't believe in monsters.' "'Alonzo Moss took that as his signal to step in. "'I'm afraid that's all the time we have. "'Mr. Hillerman will be in the main hall "'signing autographs at one o'clock today. Twenty dollars apiece.' Oh, "'No, no,' Ernst said. "'No charge. It's all right.' "'Mr. Moss didn't seem to think that was a good idea.' But he smiled and said, Well, once again, we want to thank Ernst Hillerman for coming all the way to our show. Next up is a panel talking about the new Van Helsing and Wolfman remakes. So everybody stick around. Okay, so we're back. I went over to the gas station while you were listening to that and... I got a soda. The lady behind the counter said, well, thanks for coming in. I said, well, you too. And then I paused and said, I mean, you you sort of had to be here. But still, thanks for being here. And she said, okay. Which I think is Appalachian for that wasn't particularly funny. So, I have a couple of topics that I wanted to discuss post each of these episodes. But I think what I'm going to talk about in this one is the setting of the book. So around 2002, maybe 2003, around then, my buddy Jeff and I went to the Fangoria weekend of horrors in burbank california and i've been to plenty of comic conventions more than my share frankly and i've been to a star trek convention a single one and a uh, a couple of star wars conventions and they've all been different levels of fandom for me. The Star Wars ones, I always felt right at home because I know Star Wars minutia, I know the bit players, I know all sorts of details. I, you know, I consider myself a Star Wars super fan. When uh, I went to the Star Trek convention, I felt like, oh, you know, I really, really like Star Trek, but I don't love it. Uh, to the level of these people around me same thing with the comic conventions you know when i go to those it's like well i i I like comic books and i really like comic book movies but i i can't say that i'm you know the biggest fan in this room Uh, and then there's the horror convention that jeff and i went to and i realized there that i'm not a horror fan at all I'm a guy who has seen a few horror movies. Okay, so <laughs> back to the beat, y'all, as Big Enklevich would say. Jeff and I went to this con, and it was for the people who really loved horror movies. It just, it opened my eyes. I mean, at that time, he and I were doing a website together, a horror film review website, And we would watch approximately a hundred horror films a year, which I I guess is only two a week, but still, you know, we thought we were pretty dedicated to our favorite genre. And uh, we were surrounded by these people who it just, every waking moment of their lives was dedicated to horror. They ate it up. They would watch them over and over and over again. The tattoos were the things that most spooked me. When you get a tattoo of the tall man from Phantasm, that's dedication. You are no longer a casual fan. You know, a lot of these, these horror fans, these diehard horror fans, were creeps. But, I think you can find creeps in almost any kind of fandom. I know a guy who's super into wrestling and he just he loves wrestling so much and it uh, it turns my stomach. And I I had a job where the guy that I worked with every single day was a male My Little Pony fan and he'd tell me about that fandom, the, the Brony movement and it it really opened my eyes. I was like, "Why well, I I I did not know this was a thing?" Yet he Touted it, he he always wanted to talk about it because it was something that gave him joy. And I suppose that's the point of all fandom. You find something that gives you joy and you want to celebrate that. You want to recapture that feeling that it gives you. In the same way as someone will buy the soundtrack album to a, a play that they went to or, um, you know, a movie that they're a fan of. Same as putting the poster on your wall, as buying the action figures. There are experiences that you want to repeat, that you want to relive, that you want to remember. And um, these guys were that way for horror, and they reveled in it. They, they, They had obscure knowledge way beyond what Jeff and I had, I got to talk to Wes Craven at that convention, uh, we, we met John Landis, we got to go to a pr- couple of preview screenings for horror movies that were about to come out. And, and mostly though, it was just, you know, there were a, a thousand different ways to spend your money and to show your, to let your freak fly flag Nope, to, ret your fleek, to let your fleek, f- to demonstrate your dedication to your fandom. It was a fun time, I thought. I mean, it was me and my friend getting to hang out and uh, go to panels and, and, and stuff like that. And yet, I I'd never, I didn't feel like I was one of them. I, that's weird, that. And I, I, when I went to the Star Trek convention, I didn't feel like I was one of them either. It just, anyway, I, with the one-two punch of the Star Trek convention and the horror convention, I really wanted to write about a con, about somebody that went to one and maybe felt out of place or felt uncomfortable about it. And uh, I, I have written a couple little pieces that are about that sort of thing. Now, this is the big one, you know, the, the, the way that Ernst feels, where, of course, the spotlight is on him, so that's a, a more unique experience. So, listen, I can come off as judgmental, you know, sitting in a room with a bunch of people who know all of the episodes of Star Trek and think, oh, well, I'm not like them, when I've not only seen all the episodes of Star Trek, I own all of the episodes of Star Trek. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm in no position to judge. I just found it strange to be surrounded by these people that just, oh gosh, they, they loved horror to that extent. You know, the main, the main character is not a horror fan and he is not a celebrity. He's not used to this kind of attention on him. I mean, he's not even really an actor. If you sat him down and say, how do you define yourself? You know, he'd be like, well, I'm a bachelor. I was a sanitation worker. (laughs) I'm a a, a bit of a loner. I think that he would consider himself a, a fairly decent man, but not particularly good, not particularly bad, not special in any way. And to be surrounded by people who think that he is special, who want to know details about the movie that he doesn't know about. That's an interesting place to put this character. Now, of course, that's not really what the the story is about. The story, you know, that you put on the back of the VHS tape is 30 years ago he appeared in a movie that was cursed and everyone else related to the movie died. Coincidence?
2: I don't know about that.
0: <laughs> I think we've had this discussion before about what is a good title and what is a bad title. And Newfound Fame would qualify as a bad title in that uh, it doesn't sound like a horror movie and it doesn't sound like it doesn't tell you what you're getting. So, I, for, briefly, I did consider calling the story The Black Depths. No, no, it's not the black depths, though, it's the brown depths. See, that's why I didn't do it. <laughs> and so, yeah, if they made a movie of this book, you know, it would say based on Newfound Fame by Rish Outfield, but it would be called something else. And they would make it sexier, and they would make it much more overtly horror in the title and uh, I would not criticize them in the slightest if that were the case I mean I'd be happy to spend the money you know they they turn Alonzo Moss into like a 20-something bucks love interest and our lead is suddenly 41 but he still looks really good without a shirt on yeah well that's what Hollywood would do to a a book like this. But I'll tell you what, if I had to cast it myself, who would I cast as Ernst Hillerman? Well, I'll I'll tell you in the next episode, who would you cast? Yeah, let me just turn the the question back on you. I'm not being defensive. You're the one that's being defensive. Why is it always the other person? Have you asked yourself that? Why didn't you ask yourself that? (laughs) It's him, right? Anyhow, thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you have enjoyed it and are looking forward to the next segment. And uh, I will see you soon. That's it. That's it. We've reached the end. Good night. The music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod, whose shenanigans can be found over at Incompetech.com. The Rish Outcast is presented under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives License. That license enables you to share the file with anyone, but not to charge for it or alter it. A license to kill, by the way, enables me to kill anyone I please, whenever I please. You judge which is best. Okay, so we're back. I ran over to uh, the gas station while you were... You know, I should have gotten gas. Boy, I'm a dumbass. Luckily, there will be another one of these where I can. All right, here we go. I'm going to give you a little outtake that you can enjoy at the end, as if the episode wasn't already long enough. But when Jeff and I went, it was uh, 2002, and... There was all this talk about Universal was m- remaking this Japanese horror movie called Ringu that we had heard of but we had never seen. And one of the things that they sell at horror conventions, well, and probably all conventions is there will be bootleg videos of movies that you that you know, were never officially released or versions that weren't released in this country you know things like that and there was a booth that we looked through and somebody had a copy of Ringu the Japanese horror movie and they weren't asking a lot for it it was like 10 bucks or something like that because it was just you know a VHS copy of a a VHS copy right Uh, but Jeff and I had wanted to see it and we'd heard of, of it and so I think we each threw in like five bucks. Although it's possible that it was, you know, 20 bucks, 15 bucks or whatever. And we threw in more uh, to get a copy of this. And then that night, Jeff was sleeping on my couch and we watched Ringu together. You know, you know what the ring is. You know, there's a cursed videotape somebody stumbles upon. And if you watch it, then I think seven days later you die unless you can convince someone else to watch it. And that's the diabolical beauty of that premise. I love that idea of, unless you can screw somebody else over, you know, the curse comes on you. And there are a lot of movies that are like that. My favorite one is probably It Follows, where it's almost a supernatural STD. And then just recently... I saw, in fact it was this week, I saw Truth or Dare, which was a, a 2018, a fairly slick horror movie where there's a deadly game of Truth or Dare, but you can stay alive by bringing other people into the game and playing the game with them, and then they share the curse with you. And it might be a good long time before it's your turn again. I, I really like that stuff. And there's a lot to think about in one of those moral quandary type horror movies. Where you can save yourself by condemning another person. And who would do that and who wouldn't do that? And that's probably neither here nor there. Anyway, Jeff and I watched this movie and it was really scary. And uh, we went to the convention the next day after having watched this and um, went through the whole rest of the day. And at the end of the night, we went out to the parking lot and there was a video cassette on the windshield of my car. It, uh, it didn't have a label. It didn't have a note with it. It was just a what appeared to be a blank video cassette. And Jeff and I looked at each other and we were like, oh, because we had watched Ringu the night before. Like, you know, wouldn't it be scary if... kind of thing. I looked around and I discovered that there were videotapes on everyone's windshield. It was a publicity stunt. But it, like I said, it was blank. It didn't. It didn't say what it was. And so... We went home, and we got this videotape, and we didn't even hesitate, but we put it in the VCR, pushed play, and it was the trailer for the new Naomi Watts Ring movie, and it was just hands down the cleverest publicity stunt that I had seen. I thought that that was a very, very clever thing to do. And and Jeff and I talked about it. And we wondered, well, how many people watched the video? And how many people just tossed them out? Or how many people did the tapes melt in the sun on the windshield of people's cars? But for us, it worked. And not only did it work, but I ended up seeing that movie opening night because I was excited about it. Because of that little gag that they had done. I just wanted to share that with you. That is that is the high point, the, the memory I most cherish about that horror convention that my friend and I.